Matthew chapter 6, we're going to be going through verses 12 and 15. Man, one of the, what I would say is horrifying but illuminating realities that social media has brought to light in our day and age is that most people, man, are just not inherently forgiving by nature, right? Uh, again, if you don't believe me, take a casual stroll through, you know, a Twitter thread or a Facebook post and you'll just, you'll read even confessing Christian brothers and sisters just making the craziest of comments while taking just like the cruelest of shots at one another. And some of you guys are saying, well, that's why, that's why I stay off social media, Ronnie. I don't want to have anything to do it. And fair enough. But um, social media is just a symptom at the end of the day. It, it's just a symptom. It just exposes our temptations and our fears. What it really does is it just unmasks sort of this uncontrolled and unrepentant sin that in actuality is always crouching at the door of our hearts. And it's just waiting to pounce. It's just waiting to pounce like those videos you see of like lions on zebras if you like watch those kinds of things, right? I mean, that's a good picture uh, of what sin is doing as it, as it crouches at the door of our heart. Because what's at the heart of, of this just this total insanity that we see in our day and age is what Jesus calls us to pray through as we open up Matthew and we go through the Lord's Prayer. So I'm just going to pick up right now as we're getting to the end. This is our last week in the series, and we're going to pick up here in verse 12. And this is what it says if you want to follow along. And forgive us our debts, Jesus says, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So what I want to do is I want to start out by just dealing with what Jesus says right there in verse 12 when he says, forgive us our debt. And I want to just unpack a little bit of what Jesus means by debt. What does Jesus mean when he says sin or what he's calling debt here? And uh, here's a picture for you. Uh, picture waking up in the morning to a no-limit American Express card, maybe some of you guys have that one, with a balance that you need to pay that exceeds what you will ever make in a thousand lifetimes, right? That's a picture of what Jesus is instructing us to pray to God for, to forgive us of. So when we think of sin, a lot of us don't think of sin as being debt, right? We think of sin as just being, man, you know, I know I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect, right? Not perfect, just forgiven, right? Maybe you guys have that bumper sticker on the back of your car. You've seen that bumper sticker. But it, but it goes a little more serious than that when we unpack what is behind the word debt. Seeing our sin as debt, what it does is it gives us an accurate description of our sin and what our sin actually is. Again, we are not just people who do some bad things sometimes. You know who that is? That's my cat, right? Which is why we're going to have a chat real soon about whether this whole thing's working out or not, right? But the Apostle Paul says something really interesting about how we need to understand and define our sin when you go to Romans uh, 3.23. What is he, he makes this comment. He says, the wages of sin is what? Do you guys know the rest of it? Death. The wages of sin is death. What that tells us is that our sin is so deep. It runs so deep. It is so inherent. It is so who we are from the inside to the outside that it actually provides us with one payment option. So to even understand what Jesus is 
saying here in terms of instructing us in how we need to pray for forgiveness, we have to understand that. Because the reason the payment for sin is death is because God is holy. That's the reason behind it. Romans, uh, Hebrews 9.22, this is what it says. It says, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And then it says this, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. That's why God just can't forgive everyone. Like, do you ever hear people say that? You know, why can't God just forgive everyone? Or God is so loving that, you know what, he just forgives everyone. Well, that's not true. We got a very different report here from Scripture. Sin is death. And because sin is death, death must be what absorbs the cost of our sin. Right? So if God was impure... If God wasn't totally holy, if God was less than holy, then you know what these demands would sound like? They would sound like the ravings of some maniacal ruler. So the fact that our sin requires the shedding of blood, don't you think that says something substantial about the glory of God's holiness? So again, we start to think about our sin and we start to think about what it says about us. Well, let's flip that for a minute. Let's talk about what our sin says about God's holiness and why it requires a payment that we can't pay that actually includes the shedding of blood. What does that tell you about who God is? So when we pray, as the beginning of this prayer tells us, if you go back to verse 9, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It makes sense then. When we, when we pray a line like, hallowed be thy name, when we're making that statement about the truth of who God is, it makes sense then that we would need to pray, forgive us our debts. The encouraging part about all this is that if God has become your Father in heaven, you have this forever passcode giving you access to go before God because of the debt that has been paid, and we'll get more into that in a minute. Psalm 130, verse 4, the psalmist tells us this, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, or should mark sin, or should mark our debt, he says, Lord, who could stand? He's saying, if you just merely look at our sin, like none of us get to stand before you. There is no hope, there is no chance, we're gone, like it's over for us. But then he says this, but he says, with you, there is forgiveness. But he doesn't just end it there. He says, with you, there is forgiveness. Why? That you may be feared. So there is forgiveness for us so that we might know more about God's holiness, which then, again, allows us to understand more of the debt that we owe for our sin that has been forgiven. Do you guys see what I'm driving at here? So sin is debt. So he says, forgive us our debts. So then what is then forgiveness? Well, this is what forgiveness is based on what we just learned about what our debt is. Forgiveness is someone absorbing the cost of the debt that you owe them. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is someone absorbing the cost of the debt that you owe them. In fact, Jesus tells a parable to give us a depiction of God absorbing our debt so that we might understand what it means to absorb another's debt. Because there's this thing with forgiveness, is that we pray that God would forgive us our debt while we forgive those who are our debtors, who are in our debt. 
So this thing doesn't just end with God forgive me and then I can just sort of move along. But there's also sort of this response that we have to God who has forgiven the depth of our debt so that we can now forgive others. Let's turn to Matthew 18. And we're going to read this parable as a backdrop to this prayer today. Matthew 18, verse 21. Matthew 18, 21. I'm just going to start reading. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. There was a reason why Peter asked if he should forgive another brother seven times. That was, that was part of a tradition and a law that they had about forgiving someone who sinned against you seven times. But then there's that, that, that cutoff point. You chop it, and Jesus says, no, you don't understand. There's not a cutoff in terms of our forgiveness towards others. Why? Because there's no cutoff in terms of the amount of times that God, in his grace and mercy, comes down upon you and forgives you. And then p- picking up in verse 23, this is what he says. Therefore, this parable... The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. you got to understand, 10,000 talents. This would have been a mount, kind of like my horrible illustration at the beginning of the sermon, where you have this unlimited American Express black card or whatever those things are, and you just charge like a gazillion dollars on it. You charge something that in no how many matter of lifetimes you could possibly live on this earth, which by the way is one, like you would never be able to pay off the black card, right? So 10,000 talents back then would have been an amount that would have just been mind-boggling, right? Then he says in verse 25, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payments to be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So let's just stop right here. So what we see is the story of somebody that owes a debt that he cannot pay. He comes before the master of who he legitimately owes the debt to. He comes before him because everything is at stake. He was going to be sold. His wife was going to be sold. His children were going to be sold. Somebody has to absorb the cost. That somebody is him because he's the one that caused the debt. So he falls on his knees before his master and he says, have patience with me. Have pity on me. And it says the master has pity on him and forgives the debt. And if the story just ended right there, it would be so simple and it would be so glorious. And it would tell us something about what changed in that man's heart when the master said, I will have pity on you and I will let you go. I will absorb the cost of the debt. It would say something about the response of the master who forgave him the debt. And so this is what we need to understand about forgiveness, right? Forgiveness is not merely a confession. Forgiveness is not merely going before God and saying, I'm sorry, and then just like hiking the other way and then picking back up where you left off. Forgiveness is not merely a confession of sin. How do we know that? Well, let's read the rest of the story, picking up in verse 28. 
But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So we can just picture owing millions upon millions of dollars. You get relieved of this debt. Then you go and you find your buddy who borrowed 20 bucks from you like the month prior, right? That's the equivalent of what they're talking about here in verse 28. And seizing him, he begins to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Verse 29, so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. He said, have patience with me. I will pay you. But he refused and he went and put him in prison until she should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. Yeah. And they went and they reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also will my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, is what he says. So the master had pity on his servant. He absorbed the cost of his debt, but the servant's heart remained unchanged. In fact, the servant was manipulative, wasn't he? He begged for mercy, not because he was repentant for the debt he owed, but to avoid the consequences of being caught. So at, on one hand, when he bows before the master and he pleads for forgiveness, he pleads for mercy and pity, it looks as if this is a brother with a repentant heart who is begging for forgiveness. But his action and his response actually proved something about now his own heart. So the response of the master proved something about his intention and heart, but this brother, the way he walked out and what happened on the heels of his forgiveness proved that something hadn't changed with his heart. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 7.10, he says this, to give us an understanding of what I'm, I'm saying here is, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. So this worldly grief that this servant has is just that he's been caught, he's in a hole, he has potential jail time coming his way. He just wants to get himself out of the sitch, right? That's what he wants to do. But he didn't really have a heart change, and we know that. Man, that's not unfamiliar to us. Man, just because someone confesses a crime doesn't mean they're sorry they committed it. I remember I'd done ministry with this brother uh, for years, and we'd had some problems working together. And uh, I remember uh, at one point, I remember sitting down with him, and I remember saying, dude, you know, I, I, feel, like, I feel like our relationship is, is, a little, is a little lopsided. I said, because we talk a lot, we get down to the nitty-gritty of some things, and I said, I, I, feel, like, I feel like what's always lacking with you is, is any kind of repentance. And I, I mean, this brother had sinned against me in some significant ways. And I said, I, said, I just, I, you've never said sorry to me, you know, for any of these instances, any of these situations that we found ourselves in. And this guy looks at me and he goes, he goes, fine, I'm sorry. There, does that help? And I like, you know, I'm looking around, I'm like, actually, it doesn't at all. Like, that doesn't help me at all. Why? Well, because your heart wasn't overflowing with a change that comes from understanding 
the ways that you have been forgiven. So what it lacked, what it lacked in his response to me was any mercy. What it lacked in his response to me was any grace. What, what lacked was any true repentance for what he had done and, the, and the, what he had, he had caused me. So the proof is what the servant did as soon as he was free. The proof that this was a brother whose heart hasn't been changed was what he did and how he responded as soon as he was free. What did he do? Well, he hunted down a colleague and he demanded payment for a much smaller debt that he was owed. There was no evidence of forgiveness in him because no, listen, no love had been formed for his fellow servant when it was time for him to forgive. So there's something here that we can connect forgiveness with love because when we have been shown the depth of love that God showed us by sending Christ to forgive us, that doesn't just form in us an ability to say, fine, it's over, I'm going to forget about it, you go your way, I'm going to go my way, but it actually begins to form a heart-breaking mercy and grace and love for that person of whose cost you are absorbing. Does that make sense? So to sum this up for us, forgiveness is an action of both the heart and the hands, which means it's costly. When you are telling somebody that you are forgiving them, it's costly. That's why when somebody comes to you and says, will you forgive me the debt I owe you? You know, it's not a good response. Dude, it's okay. No, no, no. It's, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Everything's great as you have like the spillage and the wreckage laying around you of everything that they've done against you. All that's true. And we're going to talk a little bit what it means to, to wade our way through some of that here in a minute. But what you really need to do in response is say, I forgive you. I'm acknowledging the ruin that may be lying around me in varying degrees. But I'm forgiving you. I'm absorbing the cost. Does that make sense? I remember, just so you don't think I'm a pastor that always tells stories that makes me look like the hero, I never want to do that to y'all, right? But um, I remember I had to take a trip back in the day to Texas from California, and I needed what I thought was a reliable vehicle. My brother loaned me his truck, and uh, I got as far as Las Vegas, and the engine went out. And so I, I, had, so I had to, you know, I had to just park the truck, say goodbye to the truck, rent a van, get my way to Texas. And uh, my brother did something very uh, unique in the way that he showed the love and the mercy and grace of Christ to me. Is Man, I, I didn't have any money um, at this time in my life. And uh, he, he drove out with a friend to Las Vegas. He picked up the car. He had it towed to a garage. He had a new engine put in. He came back, and when we talked, and I said, hey, what, what can I do? You know, how can I help? When I can help, can I help? And he just said, you know what? He goes, I'll, just, I'll cover it. He goes, I'll cover it. I, I, know, I know the situation you're in, and he goes, it's okay. He goes, I will cover it. Now, again, he, he wasn't super pumped to take a weekend driving all the way out to Las Vegas to, again, put a new engine in his truck that I had caused, you know, the damage to. But he absorbed the cost. Why did he absorb the cost for me? Well, because he loved me. Because I was his brother. It cost him something. It cost him thousands of dollars. It cost him hours and hours of time. He absorbed 
the cost. So forgiveness is an action of both the heart and the hands, right? And in Christ, we see both of those things laid out before us, right? The most famous verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his son. There was a cost. There was a cost involved to pay our debt of sin. So I'm going to take a few minutes and I'm going to talk about the marks then of a forgiven person. This will be a little bit of a review of what we just went over. But I have three marks of a forgiven person. The first is that they are sin conscious. The second is that they are humble hearted. And the third is that they are Jesus oriented. So what do we get from this prayer that Jesus is calling us to pray in terms of God forgiving us and us being forgivers of others. Well, the first one is that we are sin conscious. We become sin conscious. Luke 18, 9 through 14, another parable that Jesus told. And it says, he's told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, but treated others with contempt. This was the parable. He said, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then Jesus says this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So to know the depth of our forgiveness, we must know the severity of our debt. That's why we spent so much time on the front end of this thing talking about debt, right? As we grow in this awareness, we become less trusting of ourselves, Right? Which is why Jesus instructs his disciples to pray as you get to uh, uh, verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So forgiveness is meant to illuminate our actual condition. Kind of like the beggar who stood far off beating his chest, conscious of his true self before the Lord. So to be forgiven and to be a forgiver is seeing yourself for who you truly are. Which is Listen, you are so susceptible to sin that it is only through prayer and only through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that God will deliver you from the temptations of your flesh to deceive yourself into thinking you ain't that bad. That's why this prayer is so important because of self-deceit. And that's why confession and repentance, both of those things, needs to be routine. Confession saying, hey, I'm admitting my guilt. Repentance meaning I'm turning from it. That's why those two things work in tandem. Because we are so easily deceived in the thinking we are not as broken as we really are. So confession and repentance is like doing regular maintenance checks on your heart. Charles Spurgeon said, as the salt flavors every drop in the Atlantic, so does sin affect every atom of our nature. What are you trying to say, Charlie? That we got issues? And then he says this, it is so sadly there, so abundantly there, 
that if you cannot detect it, you are deceived. Amen. Welcome to Substance Church. Have a good time. No donuts this morning. I mean, dude. Spurgeon. So we need to be sin conscious. That's going to be one of the marks that we are forgiven and forgiver. Two, we need to be humble-hearted. We need to be humble-hearted. One of the ways God leads us away from the temptation to deceive ourselves is by testing us. Do you guys understand that? God tests us. He doesn't tempt us. In fact, his brother James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But then he says this crazy line. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So all those temptations that you give into, it's you. It's not the devil made me do it. It's not I was too weak. It's you. It's the desires of your flesh that you are choosing in that moment to believe to be the most satisfying thing in your life. So God tests us as a grace to humble us so that obedience becomes what best characterizes us. Let me say that again. God tests us to humble us. Why? So that obedience becomes what best characterizes us as forgiven people who want to be forgivers. God did this in the Old Testament with the children of Israel, Deuteronomy 8.2. He says, and you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. 40 years! And then he says, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So a humble-hearted person absorbs the cost of another's sin because they are conscious of their own sin and therefore, wait for it, less critical of another's sin. Philippians 2.3, Paul instructs the church, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more, what, significant than yourselves. So humble-heartedness is the opposite of self-centeredness. And it allows you to extend a forgiveness that in and of yourself, man, you don't possess. Tim Keller made this comment. He said, if you met a truly humble person, you wouldn't think of him or her being humble, but happy and incredibly interested in you. I love that definition. Because there's this self-forgetfulness that Keller is getting at, which actually leads to our ability because of the power of the Holy Spirit working in us to forgive them when they have cost us something. So we need to be sin-conscious, humble-hearted. Finally, we need to be Jesus-oriented. This prayer doesn't make us right before God. Why do we know that's true? Well, because Matthew 18, that servant who looked as if he was bowing before his master and was absolved of his debt and his guilt, he walked away and continued in the sin. So just merely praying this prayer doesn't make us right before God, but it helps us right our loves and reorient our affections back to Jesus, who, by the way, absorbed the cost of our debt. What do you think we sing about every week? Jesus paid it all. Jesus made us alive. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Come to Jesus, you who are weary and heavy laden, so that your sin and your debt can be absolved and you can find rest 
for your soul. This is the glorious grace of our lives. What do you think we sin? We sing about. We sing about absolved debt that comes through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me continue on with Romans 3, 22 and 23. This is what Paul said. But now that you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, you're a slave. Y'all are slaves. Who or what are you enslaved to? But he says, now that you've been set free to become slaves of God, the fruit that comes from that slavery to God via your freedom leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, like we read earlier. But what I didn't finish reading was this. The free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So to be forgiven is to have true freedom from your own debt, which gives you the freedom then to forgive others their debt to you. And it's all possible because of the grace of Jesus. So take this home with you. This, what I'm about to say right here. The problem, listen, the problem with the wicked servant is that he walked away with no love, no gratitude, no remembrance of his merciful master. That's the crux of that story. Unrepentant sin produces short memories in us all, right? Only forgiven people can truly forgive from the heart. And that's why it's costly. And that's why it's so costly. So two things I want to finish with here. Because here's where we come at this with. And here's probably what some of you guys are thinking right now. Because there's typically two scenarios that are at play when we preach a sermon about forgiveness. And I know that there's a lot of questions that surface in you. And I hope this answers some of those questions. If this doesn't, man, I would love to discuss some of these things with you because this can start to feel murky and gray. But I'm going to try to demurkify all this. I don't know if that's a word, but that's what I'm going to try to do right here. So some of you guys are sitting there thinking, Ronnie, you don't understand. You don't know the ways that I have been sinned against. So for some of you, your first thought is, man, I, I can't forgive. Or maybe I have tried to forgive, but I can't forgive. Now, here's what we understand as we look into Scripture. That forgiveness doesn't always mean restoration. Forgiveness doesn't always mean restoration. Just because we can forgive somebody in our heart doesn't mean that they're doing the same and therefore we can have a completely restored and renewed relationship with that person. It doesn't always mean restoration. So you can forgive not have restoration, and that will be gospel-delivered forgiveness to your soul and to your heart, right? So it doesn't always mean restoration. It does mean release from the anger and the bitterness that unforgiveness keeps you bound in. That's what it means. And you know what? Let me just say this. It's a process, it's a process. Some of you guys have been sinned against to the degree that it is going to take you time. It's going to take counsel. It's going to take walking through these things with other brothers and sisters. It's going to mean having some meetings with the elders of Substance Church. It's going to mean praying heartily through these passages so that God can slowly but surely do a work to start removing some of that angst and that bitterness and that woundedness that characterizes part of your life. 
So it's a process. Nobody's talking about any sort of quick solutions, right? I'm not going to give you 19 steps so that you can walk out of here and everything's just, you know, cheery. Because it's not necessarily the case. And we'd be lying if we said otherwise. The longing you have, listen, for justice is right and it's good. And by the way, it is inherently built inside of you by God. But the forgiven person trusts that all of that someday, eventually, all of that longing for justice that may not even be experienced here on earth someday will be satisfied by God. 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, talking about Jesus, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So the process that some of you guys may be in or that you maybe need to begin going down the road of is trusting in the one who will judge justly. It may be that in this life, man, the person who sinned against you will not absorb the cost of the pain that it caused you. But you know that Jesus has. And you know that you can trust him to continue to work in this situation even if in this life, you don't find the kind of resolve and restoration in it that you so desire. So we trust God in these things. And then finally, some of you guys are saying, I can't forgive. Some of you guys are saying, God can't forgive me. You don't understand who I was before I started coming into the door of this warehouse. You don't understand who I am coming into the door of this warehouse week after week. In fact, I'm hiding a lot. I'm concealing a lot. I wear nice clothes, but you guys have no idea what's going on when I walk out these doors. That is some of you here. That is some of you here. And so when I preach messages like this, your first thought is either, well, I don't care, or I'm scared because I don't believe God could forgive me. If he could just see all the things I do, he would go running the other way. When in reality, we know that there's nothing God doesn't see. Some of you think that your sin is too great for God to forgive. And again, it's a misunderstanding of who God is, which is why this prayer is so important. And it's why this prayer begins with allowing us to see that God is a father who is holy, but he's a father who wants, whose desire is to treat you like a son or a daughter. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Because God is a father and not a liar, we can trust those words to be true. And we can take a risk. We can go before the Lord. We can confess our sins. We can come into this family of faith. We can plead with other brothers and sisters who will willingly hear our story, who will willingly walk through some of the stains of the sin that might plague us for years. Trusting that it's not our actions, but the actions of a faithful and just God to cleanse us and to keep us cleansed from all unrighteousness. Prayer helps us believe what is already true about God, who has our ear and whose heart we hear every time we open this book. 
So what do we need to do now that we've had a four-week series on prayer is we need to walk out of here. We need to commit ourselves to being people who pray. Not in a legalistic sense. Not because if you have those days where you don't pray, somehow God's up there like the angry wizard getting ready to cast a spell on you. That's not what it means. It means that you have a father, and that's where you need to begin as you now have a model and a template for the things that you need to pray through in your life that God has given you to know him, the creator of the universe, the one that loved you enough to sacrifice what he loved most so that you could pray this prayer to him. So let's do that now. Let's bow our heads and pray through this prayer together.